the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, uh, right here in Orlando. Um, Speaking of right here in Orlando, that's where Alan Dempsey is. He's our engineer and a good one. And Andrew Hurtliska is our producer. And Tom Bernardo is our guest. He's in San Clemente, California. His book is called The Honest Guide to Church Planting. Uh, Tom, first of all, welcome. I'm glad that we have a chance to visit here. How are you doing? Thanks, Pat. So glad to be with you. Appreciate what you guys do. What qualifies you to write a book about church planting? There's got to be a background story here, doesn't there? <laughs> well, part of the book is is that a, there is nobody qualified, so I guess that means me too. I, you know, I've planted a couple of churches in my day. I've worked with church planters, and I now mentor and coach church planters. A mm-hmm. big, big part of this, though, Pat, comes from my own experience as a church planter. And then I, one of the churches I planted, I, I was privileged to lead for 21-plus years. So I got kind of all angles on church planting. And I guess what prompted it was not just my own experience, but seeing what's going on in church planting, because I love church planting. I think it's the way the kingdom of God advances. But... There's also some stuff that's being said and done that doesn't quite lead people to authentic experience, and that's kind of what prompted the book. What is your definition of church planting? Yeah, well, it it really means the pioneering part of of seeing an area or a people group that does not have a gospel witness and doesn't have a fully functioning community of Christ followers and saying, By the time we get done, can there be a fully functioning group that names the name of Jesus Christ, that presents the gospel? Sometimes we talk about the three E's of church, evangelism, edification, and exaltation, that those are functioning within the boundaries of what God has said in His Word for a church that is sustained and um, reaching its community. Uh, Your book opens with a chapter called The Truth About You, The Destined for greatness thing. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it, I guess it's one of the dirty little secrets of leadership in general, but especially pastoral leadership, and in particular, church planting. Because if you're going to pioneer and you think you've got what it takes to plant a church, which I think is one of the hardest jobs on planet Earth, it also means something else. And we talk about the evil twin of leadership is hubris or arrogance. And I know this is true for me. I know it's true for a whole lot of the people I work with. Not not entirely, but we have to deal with the fact that we're motivated by not all godly things, that so much of that comes down to what we think of ourselves, what we think we're capable of. And the, the first step, the first thing God might want to do for somebody who's planting a church is not so much to grow the church, it is to grow that person. And in order to do that, he has to deal with that the real deep heart issues that are very ugly in a whole lot of us that says, we think we've got the capacity to do something that no one else can do. We think we've got the—and we, we, we will mask it in saying we, we're here to serve Jesus, we're here to advance his kingdom. But usually that gets mixed and intermingled, and God has a very merciful yet direct way of saying, you know what, first we've got to weaken you, not strengthen you, in order for you to be able to be used to your fullest. Now, let's move to the second topic, the truth about proven methods. You can organize a church right. to death, but you can't organize one to life. You know, Pat, I think that may be one of the most common things that seems to happen in America in particular when it comes to organizations and leadership. You've written on this. You know about this. People always want to reverse engineer what works. They look and they say, hey, that worked there. Let's get it to work here. Let's look for transferable principles. And so that has really happened when it comes to the church and when it comes to planting churches. We've got, it's almost a cottage industry now of the prepackaged ways to go about it. If you put these steps into practice, you'll get this result. 
And what we need to understand about our God is that he not only is not predictable, he really doesn't take too kindly to having others try to think he can be. And so God has a way of thwarting that when we try to do it, because when we, when we try to organize it and do all the steps, we kind of remove the Holy Spirit from the equation. We kind of remove the creativity of God who wants to write different stories for each place. And, every, you know, if you think about Scripture, you think about how many times God pulled really strange mechanisms out of the air for how he wanted the children of Israel to fight or walk or move. Or when Jesus was healing people, he, he used, he didn't just say the same thing the same way. He did it in ways that sometimes confuse us. Part of the adventure of trusting God and seeing him move is knowing that you can't just put a formula together for this thing. There's going to be variables that you will never be able to predict. You need to be able to embrace those, not just be frustrated by them. And the more we can embrace them and see this is the only book it goes by is the one you write about yourself when you're done. We could understand and free ourselves a little bit from the frustrations that often come that people don't talk about in planting churches. Uh, here's the third topic for you, Tom, the truth about getting butts in seats, what you do <laughs> and bring them, you'll have to do to keep them. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, there is this tendency that has happened <clears throat> in the last generation in our country where we say it's all about, in, we've got to find a way to compete with all the other signals people are reaching just to entice them. If we can entice them to come and be in our in our service or at our program, at our new church, then we get a, a we get a certain amount of people there, and then we retain them. And the problem with enticement, as we've learned in our country, but this is true in the church too, that that enti- enticement leads to expectation, and then expectation leads to entitlement. And so, when people are conditioned to say, "Okay, you're here to meet my needs." You're here to do what I want done. Then we've got to keep performing for them. We've got to keep impressing them enough to keep them coming back. And that flies directly in the face with the message and even the character of Jesus Christ, who said, I did not come you know, to be served. I came to serve. I, I, we, we wanted, he called us to be like him. So we want to call people to be servants, not consumers. But when we just try to entice people to get them there, we condition them to say, well, this is all about you. This is all about what meets your needs, as opposed to saying, you know what, we are here because God placed us here to, to be an instrument of his blessing in other people's lives. That's what the church is about. So if we build that into our DNA, I think we create trouble for ourselves, and we see it all the time. People will drop out of church because, well, it's not, well, it's the phrase they always use, it's not meeting my needs anymore. But we've kind of set them up to say that if we use that enticement model in order to get them there. Uh, Tom Bernardo is the author of The Honest Guide to Church Planting. Tom, we've arrived at the fourth topic, the truth about core groups and launch teams. No one's ever as yeah. committed as you. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, don't, I think every model of planting a new church, and this is true in just any kind of new entity, is you want a core of people who are committed at the base of it. And we always, we, I teach that. I say you've got to look for those kinds of folks. Here's what we what we need to know if, if somebody wants to endeavor to plant a church is that, and I want to say this carefully because I think Jesus said it carefully, you know, the people of God are, he calls them sheep. Now, he, it's an endearing term, but it also means that they're prone to wander and they're prone to weakness and they're not especially intelligent, and I don't want to insult God's people, but that's what Jesus said about them. And as shepherds, we're there to guide these sheep but a lot of times what we think is we can put expectation on the core of them and treat them like they're not sheep anymore. Um, no, you know, everybody's got lives to live. Everybody's got um, limitations. And church planters desperately want people who care about it, who, who lay awake at night, you know, sleepless, thinking about where it's going. The reality is that we're putting a pressure on people to give what they're not wired to give. They're probably not even capable of giving. And we can get angry at them then, and we, we get frustrated. We start beating the sheep rather than shepherding the sheep as leaders when we do that. And that undermines then the very core of our, our church and our church plant. Rather than that, we, we really need to understand that, yes, we want to use folks who are, and they, we want them to serve. 
but but we need to understand we can't pressure them to be all in as much as we think we can. We need to accept the the level that they're willing to give, affirm that, and then understand that they're not going to come through the way we want them to, and kind of get used to disappointment. Understand that just just like God does with us, you know, He knows that He can't entirely count on us to be flawless, so. He works with us, and he accepts what we're willing to give him and able to give him and without shame. And the more we can do that, the more we'll free ourselves from the frustration of having people that were constantly angry with us and we're angry with them. Now, we've got to take a break, but then we're going to be back with our guest, Tom Bernardo, right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, with Tom Bernardo. He's in San Clemente, California. The name of the book, The Honest Guide to Church Planting. And Tom, we've arrived at your fifth topic, the truth about the back door. Don't chase Christians. Uh, fill us in. One is probably the one who runs counter to what most pastors and church leaders tend to think, because we're always talking about how the back door is a frustration, a problem. People come and people go. And it is a frustration. It, no one likes to have that happen. No leader wants it or thinks it should happen on his watch. But here's the thing, Pat, about not just church planning, but church leadership in general. There's something we need to pay attention to about Jesus. Jesus gave invitations, and he never made pleadings with people. You know, there's not a single recorded time in Scripture where Jesus ever had somebody turn away from him that he chased after them. He allowed, he respected their decisions. He allowed them to go. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pay attention to people who have needs and who have frustrations. But what it means is if we put a lot of energy, so much energy into, and we do, into saying, how can we keep people who come? How, How can we make sure they're connected? We basically, there's a a phrase in economics called opportunity cost, which basically means if you spend money on one thing, you can't spend it on another. And and if we spend our energies and time in saying, how do we please these people? How do we make sure they're okay and they keep coming back? We kind of divert that energy from our primary calling, which is we're here to reach new people who don't, don't know Jesus yet and to mature those people who come in to help them grow. Jesus was always teaching the teachable. But when they left him, he said, "Are you?" in fact, he, he kind of said, hey, you're welcome to go. He kind of opened the back door. And that's really hard to do because we feel like we need momentum and we need movement. But for the health of a group, we need to know those, there's always going to be an ebb and flow. We, we're never going to stop it. The people will make their choices. We need to keep moving forward with those who want to move forward, invite people to come, but not plead with them or coerce them to stay. Now, I want you to talk about the sixth topic, the truth about lottery winners, fast growth, maybe suspect growth, you say. Yeah, you know, we have a celebrity complex in our country, and it extends to the church. And I I don't want to say anything negative about large churches or fast-growing churches. I think God has used them. I think they can be fantastic. But Something happens, Pat, when we set up a model that shows explosive growth as, as what we should be normative. First of all, it's not how Jesus described how the kingdom advances. He used, he used decidedly slow models, things like mustard seeds growing, and, and James 5 talks about waiting for the spring and the fall rains and God being patient, you know, and, and slow, fast growth often, and this is the dirty little secret, that happens in church planning, when you see fast growth, I call them lottery winners because it happens. Somebody wins a lottery, but really nobody wins a lottery. Not you, not, not me. You know, it's, it's some obscure situation, and it can't be replicated. But when we, when we set that up, here's what we don't realize, that fast growth in churches almost always, when every study verifies this, fast growth is almost always transfer growth. It's shuffling Christians who are displaced from one place or another, a church split, they've moved to a new area. It looks great, but in terms of real gains for God's kingdom, reaching people who are in darkness and bringing them to light, fast growth generally doesn't refer to that. Jesus talked about it in the parable of the soils, that, you know, we can't beware of the fast-growing one. Instead, he calls us to slow growth, which is the next chapter, and we could probably just move on to that, too, about the pace of, of how the kingdom goes. That slow growth is substantive growth. 
slow growth means, and we look for transformation, or we need to look for transformation of people's lives and hearts more than we look at conversion numbers of people who pray to prayer or came forward in the service or give an indication. We want to see their lives and character reflect God's character. Well, that we know that doesn't happen overnight. That happens through slow and meticulous investment. I got a little uh, equation I use in that chapter on slow movement, which is sustained investment plus incremental progress plus time equals substantive growth. And really, if we want to see real change happen, we have to get over the fact that it's not going to look really fancy or impressive. People are going to write articles or books about it. But it's just going to be substantive, and it's going to be slow, and that's the kind of change we really want to see happen. Now, I want you to talk about the truth about church multiplication movements. Uh, what's that mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, we've got a big push. One part of it, you know, that says we need churches that don't just grow and don't just plant churches, but that become multiplication centers, where multiple churches are growing out of out of one church. And there's a growing pressure on church planters to say, um, you know, make sure that you don't just plant a church. Make you want to be part of a movement. You want to start a movement where where maybe dozens or hundreds of churches can be planted. Now. No one's going to argue that that would be fantastic. I, I agree with that. I'd love to see that happen. But the pressure that's on young guys in particular to go out and say, you're not successful. And this is true for any pastor. You're not successful unless, you, if your church is plateaued or if it's declining, you're a failure. If it's growing, you're okay, but you're still not really where you need to be. You need to be multiplying rapidly. Uh, I think that that happens sometimes. I want to see it happen more. But we have to be really careful that I think a whole lot of guys, I know this is true for me, felt completely shamed when I would hear those calls and challenges because I would look at my church and say, well, we're not growing very fast. We're not making much progress. And and multiplication is fantastic, but the subtitle of that is you don't get to be Moses. You know, Moses was called to be a once-in-a-generation leader, and we always quote, we, we always look at him in our studies to say, look at Moses. You could be like Moses. You go from obscurity to leadership and you make big things happen. But the thing is, Moses didn't choose to be Moses. God chose him to be Moses. He was very reluctant to be who we know as Moses now. That's how church leadership is, too. You be faithful. You preach the gospel. You work with people. You develop them. You strengthen them. And then if God chooses you as somebody who has this explosive thing happen or multiplication happen, fantastic. But don't let's not shame our guys for saying, hey, you're being faithful, and it's just not really going as fast or as multiplying as you wanted to. Now, Tom, let's talk about the truth about how you're viewed. Everyone's kingdom-minded until you show up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, if you want to say that there's some dirty little secrets, I, we, this is not our best our best face as the collective church. Uh, and I've, I've seen this multiple times, experienced it myself. Other churches will say, um, hey, we're glad you're coming into town, we're glad you're here, but they kind of tend to feel a little bit threatened. They kind of feel like, up oh, somebody else is setting up shop down the block, it's competition. And we would say it's not, we know it's not, but I guess I want people to hear in leadership. You know, that, that, that happens a lot, and the call I would, I would put on guys is be proactive about that. Don't... Um, don't assume anything and, and build a relationship. Go in and make give assurances. If you go in to plant a church where somebody else is, tell them you're not there to steal but steal the people. Tell them you'll, you'll communicate if people come from one church to another. The other, the other part of that chapter that I think is really significant is, is, is it's just what others think of ourselves, but some of it is how we even think of our, how we judge ourselves, how we measure ourselves, and how we say, you know, I feel pressure on myself to, to be successful. Um, I feel like I've got to measure up to expectations. And I, guys need to hear, Pat, you know this in, when you deal with leaders, it's a lonely, lonely job. You know, you, you don't have really many places you can turn to or, or people you can talk to. And I just want guys who are being faithful to hear, you know what, when God looks at you, he doesn't have those kinds of pressures. He doesn't have that kind, those kind of uh he doesn't have charts that he's measuring on you and seeing if you're successful or not. He just knows that you're faithful. He knows you love him. He knows why you're doing it. 
and he is ab- absolutely furiously in love with you and is supportive of what you do. If we can hear that, it might just reassure us a little bit more when we hear the others who aren't so sure. Now, Tom, I want you to talk about the truth about excellence. If you try to do everything well, you'll do nothing well. Yeah, we had... This, this kind of came out of the baby boomer movement, but it's continued where churches now feel like they have to be what we would call full-service centers. Every program under the sun, everything done with excellence, your children's stuff has to be top-notch, your coffee has to be the best branded, you have to, your music has to be exceptionally good, and then you have to offer dozens of programs for every need under the sun. Some churches, as you know, have got everything from fitness centers to auto mechanics places, and all that's fantastic. I think it's great when churches can offer that. But the pressure to do that puts us in a position where we start plate spinning. And we just run from plate to plate, and we say, we've got to keep that going, got to keep that going. Everything's got to be excellent. And there's a real fallacy with that. Um, the, the whole I talk about the myth of balance in there, and others have written about that too. But rather than trying to feel like everything needs to be in balance, which is a fallacy, Jesus did not stay in balance. Jesus never had a balanced day. He didn't call on his disciples to have a balanced life. He was in a rhythm, the rhythms of grace. He, he would emphasize one thing and, and let other things go for a while. And he, and he could be accused of, he was accused of not doing things, everything well all the time. And as leaders, if we try to chase that perception that of excellence has to be there, we will absolutely kill ourselves and we will kill our people too. So rather than that, I just really urge people to say, look, just think about the handful of things that God has called you that you are equipped to do really well. You kind of keep the others just out of, it's okay to say, you know, we're going to get there, but not right now. And the more we can work on that, the more free we'll be, the better we'll play to our strengths, and the more advancement we'll see rather than trying to do everything at once. Now, I want you to get to this topic, Tom. The truth about leadership, and you say Colonel mm. Jessup was right. What's that mean? Yeah, well, that's from the classic movie A Few Good Men. Jack Nicholson's uh, character was Colonel Jessup. He was, you know, he he had this rant that everybody remembers if you've seen the movie, or even if you haven't, because it's been played a million times. Where he says, you know, you can stand and accuse me, but you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall, and so I don't care. And then you challenge how I do things, and. And that is, the, that is the experience of most leaders in most environments. They will be, they're, they're the first ones that are accused. They're the first ones who are blamed if things don't go well. No one seems to understand them. And it can be, as I mentioned before, it can just be excruciatingly lonely, and you can start to feel sorry for yourself. You can get very, very angry and walk around angry. And what... What I, want to hear, what I want people to hear, what I want to hear leaders to hear is, first of all, that's normal and common. It's a price we pay for being leaders. But there's some things we can do about it. We, we need to hear the voice of God in the middle of it. But we also need to have a safe environment. This is one of the things that gets leaders in trouble. They start being isolated. They don't have a safe place where they can talk. They can just be who they are. I had a group of guys who started when I was planting who got together and could, and we just made a commitment to each other. And we said, we're going to get together. We're not going to try to impress each other. We're just going to be here to say what it's really like. And Pat, I cannot tell you what a lifesaver that's been. It's been 25 years. In fact, yesterday I got together with those guys via, we now do it via video once a month. We're, we're, we're spread out now. We were all in one place. We're in, in three different cities now. We still get together once a month to talk about, and laugh about how painful it is, and to commiserate with each other. And we know we won't look at each other funny. We won't think any less of each other. You have a place where you can say, you know, I'm not understood. And we say, yeah, it's okay. God's with us. God's walking through this. He's doing something important. I think that is absolutely essential in leadership. And I would just challenge anybody in any leadership position to find a place where you can do that. Now, uh, Tom, tell us about the truth about God's ultimate plan for your church. Only God knows, and he's not telling. You know, Pat, this is, uh, this is where my heart really this is why I put this last in the book. Um, we always talk about vision, and in church work and in God's work, we talk about a, God, a God-given vision. 
And here's what I propose in there, that God gives a vision, but he doesn't do it for the purpose of fulfilling every aspect of that vision. That's never his intention. He gives us a vision so we can see something that we move toward, and then he will weave his plan through that vision. The vision gets us moving, and then God unveils his plan. And the thing about God's will is God has a, a will for our lives, but he doesn't tell us, he almost never tells us in advance what it is. He may, he, we might think it's a certain way, and, and your listeners know this. How many of them are where they, are, where they thought they'd be five years ago? You know, but God has always been there. He's been faithful, and we could say the path I've gone has definitely been his will. But he didn't tell me in advance, because he knows better. He knows that if he does, it'll affect our motivation. If he knows, we, we may not sign up for it. We may fail out. So he takes us on a path, and he says, now I'm going to do something different. It's going to be good. It's going to be my will. But it's not going to be what you thought I was telling you to do. Most guys who go to plant churches have a vision. I, we, we talk about it all the time. You need one. Pursue that vision. Go after it. But when it doesn't happen the way you think, don't think that God has failed you. And don't think that you failed. God has a way. This is how he works. He, does, he is God. He doesn't share that with us. He knows where he's going, and it's a good plan, and it's, a, and it's going to be one we praise him for. But it's not the one that we thought we were stepping into when we started this journey. But... Tom Bernardo, our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Our guest in that first segment, Tom Bernardo, talking about his book, The Honest Guide to Church Planting. Uh, Terry Sechrist is with us, a fellow Floridian. Uh, Her book is called Essential Oils, God's Extravagant Provision for Your Health. Uh, Terry, welcome. I'm uh, glad that we can visit, and I'm looking forward to our chat. How are you? Good morning, Pat. Doing fantastic. Thank you. So what first sparked your interest in the use of essential oils? What's the background here? Well, that is a great question, Pat. Um, Growing up as a child, I had a tremendous interest in food, which I still do. My mother was uh, a French chef and had a French cooking school. So we were all very much about food and, you know, health and all this sort of thing. So I had no knowledge at all of essential oils. However, I had knowledge of dried herbs growing up. So uh, what sparked my interest, Pat, is 24 years ago, I actually was pregnant with our third child, little Joseph, and my husband and I took an airplane flight to go on vacation at seven and a half months, which the doctor said was very safe. And uh, lo and behold, on the airplane flight coming home, When the airplane went up to altitude, my stomach just blew up like a balloon, and I became very ill. And upon arriving home, I went into very heavy labor. Mm. Um, Because I'd been using dried herbs, Pat, I thought, oh, I've got an herb for that, no problem. Well, none of that worked at all. And um, as a result, I actually got on my knees, and I just looked up, and I just said, Papa, is there anything in this house strong enough to stop heavy labor? And if there is, please tell me what it is. And the reason I prayed that is because they wanted to fly me via helicopter to a hospital, and it just sounded horrible. I mean, I just thought, I'm not, I don't want to have a baby in a helicopter. And I was very frightened, so I just prayed to God, and I said, Lord, show me if there's anything Well, I heard three words. I heard oil of lavender. And to this day, I don't know if I heard it audibly or if I heard it more um, just, you know, inside of my brain that I heard those words. And I thought, lavender, how could that possibly help me? I didn't know anything about lavender. A very good friend had given me a bottle of lavender a few months earlier, and it was sitting in my pantry because I had no idea what to do with it. And so my husband ran in there, came and said, what is this? Is this lavender? I said, yeah, I guess so. He said, what do I do? I said, I don't know. Just marinate me. So he literally put about 25 drops on my stomach pat. And within 45 seconds, my heavy labor stopped immediately. Mm. And we just looked at each other. And then we were going to have a home birth because we were so into health and nutrition 
And this midwife had delivered a thousand babies and she came running in the house and she said, I've got to call that helicopter. And then she looked at me and she said, what happened to you? And I said, I don't know. And she looked at me holding that bottle of oil. I was shaking, holding the bottle of oil. And she said, what's that? And I said, I don't know. And we just stared at each other. So I was put on uh, complete bed rest for six weeks, Pat. And I did great, except that every time I got out of bed to go to the restroom, I went back into labor every day for six weeks. And every day we put that lavender on and it stopped. So people say to me, you know, Terry, did the lavender stop your labor? I can't say that. What I do know is that it relaxed me so much, just breathing it. All of a sudden, I was just so incredibly relaxed, and my shoulders dropped, and my labor stopped. That's all I know. Terry, what oil do you refer to as the Swiss Army knife of essential oils? Oh, great question. That actually is lavender. Really? So, Pat, yeah, so the more I started studying it, you know, I was laying in bed with nothing to do. I couldn't even get out of bed. So I started studying it. Well, what is this? And I discovered, I'm going to say like 101 uses for lavender. It really is when in doubt and you don't know what to do, you grab your lavender because it has multiple uses in the human body. And then I want you to talk about <clears throat> traditional medicine versus essential oils. Uh, please tell okay. us why both are necessary. Oh, absolutely. I have the greatest respect for doctors. And I feel like there are times in our life when there might be a certain medication that we need, you know, for a period of time. Or, my goodness, if we have a broken bone, I'd be the first one to go to the doctor. Um, So I have a tremendous respect, and I feel like doctors really become a doctor because they want to help people. Um, I feel like the essential oil world, I'm just going to make this one statement, Pat. I believe that essential oils will prove to be the most powerful natural health solution in our lifetime. So, So what do I mean by that, Pat? What I mean is that On the third day of creation, when God gave us all the plants, trees, shrubs, roots, and flowers, every one of those trees and flowers have some kind of support for the human body. Now, there are over 500 scriptures on essential oils. It's funny because I used to get excited when I would see that God put something twice in the Bible. If something was repeated twice, I would get excited about it. Now, here we've got 500 scriptures that have literally not been seen. They've just been kind of lost throughout from Genesis to Revelation. So what I believe is that for daily health, just taking daily responsibility for our family's health, we can take these oils that God has shown us throughout scripture, and we can apply them to be proactive in our health, not waiting till we're sick. For example, frankincense, you know, we call that the holy anointing oil. Um, When you translate the Hebrew and the Greek, the word incense, Pat, is frankincense. It's mentioned 52 times in Scripture. Now, that oil is supportive for the body's immune system. And our immune system is the army of the human body. It's the general of the human body. The immune system is the common denominator between good health and average or poor health. So by being proactive and anointing the body on a daily basis with oils like frankincense, now we are being proactive to support the various systems of our body to stay strong and not get sick. The name of the book, Essential Oils, God's Extravagant Provision for Your Health, Uh, Terry Sechrist is our guest. So what's the importance, Terry, of James 5.14? And what are some of the many biblical examples of the importance of anointing others with oil? Oh, great question. One of my favorite scriptures, Pat. So James 5.14 says, If any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, people ask me every day, Terry, does God need oils to heal? Absolutely not. God can heal any way he wants to. A great example is the blind man. There's 
several examples in scripture of the way Jesus healed the blind man, and he healed him different every single time. So the issue is not, does God need oil to heal? The issue is he instructs us in his word in James 5.14 to anoint with oils. Now, for most of my life, Pat, I saw I was in different churches where they would take olive oil and anoint, like if you want prayer, they would take and put a cross over your forehead with olive oil. Now, olive oil is a fantastic oil. It's great for salad dressings, for cooking, for even putting in your hair, you know, to make your hair look great. But here's the issue. If I pour some olive oil in your hands and you sit there with that olive oil in your hand, 20 minutes from now, it's still going to be sitting there because the molecules are too large to go deep into the pores of your skin. Your skin is the largest organ of your body. It's a living, breathing organism. Now, if I anoint you with frankincense, myrrh, hyssop, galbanum, clove, cinnamon, all of these various oils spoken of through Scripture, the molecules of these essential oils are so tiny, they will go through your skin very, very quickly. And, that, and you'll say, Terry, where did the frankincense go? In, in three to five minutes, it's already gone through your hand into the various cells of the body. Now, the two places that the oils are, to apply the oils are beautiful, and you'll see this also in Scripture, the bottoms of your feet, such as Mary anointing Jesus with spikenard on his feet, and down your spine. These two areas have nerve endings that will transport the oils throughout your body very quickly. So years ago, I prayed and I said, Lord, I just don't understand this James 5.14. You know, I, I don't get this. Can you give me a better picture of what you really meant in the scripture with the scripture? Well, I got the most beautiful picture of a man laying in bed and his wife calls the elders of the church and five or six people come over and they are anointing this man with oil on his feet, on his head, down his spine, praying over him, anointing him a second time, anointing him a third time, and boom, that man gets up out of bed and walks out. And I thought, wow, that's a different picture than somebody laying in bed for a week or a month, you know, being sick, you know, chronically sick. I thought, wow, how does that work? So over many, I've been studying this, Pat, for 24 years. Over 24 years through personal experiences and as a certified wellness coach with thousands of clients that I have around the world, I have seen what happens when we apply James 5.14, anointing with oils and prayer in concert, that the plants themselves, the oils themselves also contain the healing properties as well as the prayer contains the healing. It's not just a... Um, you know, like some people might think, well, it's just a nice little prayer. You know, it, it's just um, a tradition. No, it's not just a tradition. The plants actually contain properties for the human body. So I hope that answers your question. Terry Sechrist is our guest. The name of the book, Essential Oils. Terry, I want you to talk about two words, <clears throat> Greek words, iomai and therapio. I'm, I'm uh, butchering them. Uh, and they give us clues about the use of essential oils. Am I right on that? Yes, you are. This is one of the most exciting discoveries that has been uh, brought to my attention. I'll spell this for your audience, Pat. Um, I-A-O-M-A-I. This is a Greek word uh, when translated into English, Iome, means instantaneous healing. And it's mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. So that means if you ask for prayer and someone prays over you and you receive an instantaneous healing, that means Iome. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Now, another word we don't talk about as much is the word, the Greek word, therapuo. Therapuo, translated into English, is the word therapy. And the meaning <coughs> is um, healing gradually over time with care and nursing. Healing gradually over time with care and nursing. Let's talk about that. Let's just say 
you you are someone that is constantly talking negative, you know, like, oh, I'm going to be sick. Oh, I'm going to be sick. You know, your words are so powerful. So you got to shift your words into the positive. Another example of therapeutic healing is, hey, get out and take a walk, get some exercise or eat a little bit healthier. Just try to improve your diet by just 10 percent. Eat a few more greens every day or eat a salad every day. Another example of this therapeutic healing is anointing the body on a daily basis with essential oils. Now, all throughout scripture, when I see the use of oils, it's just like we eat two or three meals a day. In scripture, we see people applying oils on a very daily basis, not just once a week. This is something where we, you know, here's a great example. When God created Adam and Eve, he put him in a very fragrant garden path. He didn't put him in a sterile home. You know, smell is one of the five senses that God gave us from the foundation of the world, and we rarely talk about smell. We were actually meant to live among fragrance. Why? Because when we breathe in fragrance on a very daily basis, that has an emotional response in the body. Um, All emotions are stored in the amygdala region. The amygdala region of the brain is the emotional seat of the brain. And so the rest of the brain responds to your voice. You know, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Is Terry Sechrist, her book, Essential Oils. We've got another segment with Terry. Uh, So stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Terry Sechrist is with us. Uh, She is the author of Essential Oils. Uh, Terry, what is the garlic test that you write about? What's that mean? (laughs) Okay, you might like me or you might not like me after this, Pat. So, okay. So people say, oh, Terry, I can't understand what you're saying, you know, about rubbing oils on the bottoms of your feet. How can that possibly help me? So if we take some fresh garlic, Pat, and we just chop it up real fine and rub it on the bottoms of our feet, and then, you're, if, you know, if you're married, your spouse, you know, takes their stopwatch, in 21 minutes, you will actually have major garlic breath. And that is a very important example of how essential oils like frankincense, when applied to the bottoms of your feet, will go throughout the cells of your body in 21 minutes. What oil may help to release deep negative emotions and reduce the look of fine lines and wrinkles? What do you think? <laughs> Once again, I have, to, I have to say frankincense is my favorite oil for that. It's, it's just so beautiful. Now, negative emotions, um, Pat, I want to address this again because this is one of the biggest areas uh, in essential oils in Scripture. So what happens is, is that the Bible says perfume and incense brings joy to the heart. Now, let's say you're 10 years old and somebody says, oh, Terry, you know, you're not too smart. I don't really think you're going to amount to very much, you know, something like that, right? So that that gets stored, those words get stored in the amygdala region of your brain. It is the emotional seat of the brain. Now, unless you know how to release that out, years later, that comes back to you. You suddenly remember that somebody said you were stupid. Those kinds of emotions come back. Now, when you begin to breathe in that frankincense oil, just putting a couple drops in the palm of your hand, you know, kind of rubbing your hands together and deeply breathing that oil. It goes from the olfactory in your nose and crosses over the blood-brain barrier, goes to the amygdala region of the brain, which is the emotional seat, and the brain becomes a communication system to the human body and says, Terry, let go of that negative emotion. You don't need to store that anymore. Let go of that. And frankly, Pat, as much as I love the physical healing uh, possibilities of essential oils, I am even more passionate 
about what I've seen happen with my clients over a 30, a 24 year period with the use of breathing essential oils in the ability to help our emotions. Do you know that one out of every five Americans is now on some kind of antidepressant? Mm. Terry, which oil can eliminate airborne bacterial and fungi? Well, you know, I like to use a blend, and I'll just tell you what's in that blend that I love to use for that. It is a blend of cinnamon, Mm. clove, lemon, and eucalyptus radiata. My goodness. And this is, each one of these individually is powerful, and when you put these together, oh my goodness. And, uh, And also rosemary. These are extremely powerful, and a way that we do that is um, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a terrible flood in my home a number of years ago, and it created some pretty serious mold issues uh, in in my home. So I took that blend and I put that in a cold air diffuser. That's just a simple apparatus where you put about 20 drops of oil and you uh, in the diffuser in cold water, and then you plug it in the wall and it comes out into hundreds of fine particles in the air. And I set those diffusers up throughout my home. And after a week, after seven days, I had the mold specialist come back to my home. And I had, I didn't have any mold. It was absolutely phenomenal. Mm. And that was killing all of that airborne bacteria that was in the air. Now, of course, I can't say that's going to happen for you. I'm only telling you what happened for me. Terry Sechrist is the author of Essential Oils. Now, Terry, tell me the two oils we can learn from King Solomon, a biblical botanist. Oh, my gosh. Do we have time for for me to very quickly um, read the story of Solomon? Sure. Or I don't know how we're doing on time. Yeah, fill us in. in. uh, Okay, this is just such a phenomenal. Let me get to this real quick here, and then I'll tell you the two oils. So God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now that's First Kings chapter 4, 29 through 34. So in other words, all these kings left their kingdoms and traveled on dusty roads, and they were uncomfortable. They all came to learn about Solomon. So I thought, I want to know what he's teaching. Well, Pat, you'll notice that the the first two things he taught on were plants. He was a botanist. He taught on cedar and the cedarwood, which there's so many uses of cedarwood oil, and he taught on the hyssop that springs out of the walls. These two oils were very, very important oils in biblical times. And the beautiful part about it, cedar was one of the most inexpensive oils you can purchase. Mm. And uh, if, if someone has trouble sleeping at night, cedarwood oil has natural melatonin that helps the brain to calm down and get a good night's sleep. Now I want you to tell us about peppermint oil. And why a family needs peppermint oil. (laughs) Okay, that is another great, great oil. I'm sitting here right now, Pat, drinking a bottle of water with my uh, supplement-grade peppermint in it. So the first thing is peppermint is very good for your brain function, for helping you your memory function, which I think we all need, right, and your brain function. Um, It is very, very energizing to the body. Peppermint is cooling to the body. So raising three very healthy children, if they came down with a fever or something like this, I would take 
uh, my peppermint oil and dilute it with olive oil because it's a very strong oil. And I would anoint their feet and anoint their spine. And it was very cooling to bring down uh, a fever. Um, this is just, again, one of these multi-use oils. Uh, with, when my children, they were all in sports, everybody was in sports, and I would be at their football game, and they would have a, a, an injury, and I would grab that peppermint oil and anoint them with peppermint oil. It has kind of a cortisol effect on the body to ease, ease the pain of an injury. Um, so just many, many multi-uses for peppermint. I think um, also just breathing it is very uplifting. Um, when you use a supplement-grade peppermint, Pat, you can take one drop, just one drop, and put it in an entire pitcher of water and drink that water all day long because it's energizing and cooling to the body. Now tell us about black pepper and, and why that's important in your marriage. <laughs> well, okay, it is in my chapter. You're going to have to read my whole chapter here. And I am a traditionalist, so in my chapter called Essential Oils for Extravagant Romance, I tell people, listen, if you're not married, just skip that chapter, okay? But it is a something when you breathe it. It does have an emotional response in the body. It has a, a very, very romantic response, as does sandalwood, cedarwood, Idaho uh, blue spruce. Uh, there's so many oils uh, for men to help with testosterone levels. Um, feel free to give us a call. Um, you know, I can let you know what our, our line is because uh, I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to uh, say something too quickly and not have someone have all the knowledge they need. But black pepper is really a beautiful oil to enhance romance. Terry Seacrest has been our guest, the author of Essential Oils. We have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Tom Bernardo was with us in that first segment uh, talking about the honest guide to church planting. And then... Terry Seacrest from her home in Florida plugged in and explained to us about her book, Essential Oils. Well, I want you to check out my latest book. It's out. It's called Lead Like Walt. And we look at Walt Disney and what made him a great leader. What were the qualities that he had as a leader? And more importantly, what can we learn as leaders about what Walt did so well in leadership? So uh, that book is out. It's in bookstores now. Uh, Amazon, always a wonderful way to order books. Uh, Lead like Walt. We'll be back next weekend, folks, for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.